Hello and welcome to day 22 of 30 Days of Terror. How you do? I've got two stories for you today. Mm. Are they of the calibre of Abby's doll story, which I've still not recovered from? I'm not going to tell you. It'll all be a beautiful, wonderful surprise. How are you feeling? We're nearly, we're actually genuinely very nearly at the end of our recording sessions. I mean, I had a moment in the last episode where I genuinely thought I was going to fall asleep mid-episode. Not because of the story, just because I had a wave of tiredness. And then something in the story made me freak out. And then that was it. And then he's back. Back in the room. That is, I mean, fear is your drug. That's what we've established. The next time you need to get something done, I'm just going to be like, look at this clip from Annabelle. And you'll be like, whoa. I'm on top of the world. Hoover out, start manically hoovering. She's coming for me. Somebody asked us the other day if we were stoned making some video that we made. And I was like, no, that's just the way we are. So story number one today comes from Anonymous. The organisation is going to take down the world? Yes. Oh my gosh. They listen to our podcast. (laughs) I'm a volunteer firefighter and our firehouse is very old. I've been hearing stories about it being haunted since I joined the department. For many years I never experienced anything myself. A few years ago we had a major snowstorm. We were in a state of emergency and we stayed at the firehouse for a week straight. Because we were getting non-stop calls for days, we weren't sleeping properly. When we finally did get a break to sleep, everybody was in such a deep sleep that they didn't wake up for a call in the middle of the night. Of the about 15 people at the firehouse, only myself and another firefighter, who was not my captain, woke up and we went on the call alone. The whole firehouse shakes when we get a call and it's incredibly loud. So I mean they were all in a seriously deep sleep. When we got back, I went back to sleep for maybe an hour or two more when I was woken up by my captain, who seemed pretty nervous. He wanted to know if I was okay. I told him I was fine and why would he think that something happened to me? He said that I tried to wake him up. I know for a fact that I didn't try to wake him up but he said that I tried to wake him up and that when he finally woke up, it looked like I was standing in his office vomiting blood. He thought I walked away because the person disappeared and he assumed that it was because he was still half asleep and he didn't remember me actually walking away. I have a liver condition that makes me bleed easily and I have vomited blood in front of him before, but I knew that it didn't happen. I got up and went into his office and turned on the light. I wanted to prove to him that nothing happened because it clearly scared him and he wouldn't accept me telling him that it didn't happen. There was no blood to be found in the office, anywhere on me or any place else. But he insisted it was me who tried to wake him up because it was a female with long dark hair. I'm the only female firefighter in my department and none of the guys have long hair so there's no way it was anyone else. I also thought it was strange that he woke up to me supposedly trying to wake him up and not to a loud siren and the entire firehouse shaking. Then during the same week I heard a loud noise coming from the kitchen. I went over to see what it was and nobody was there. But the pots and pans that we have hanging from hooks on the walls were banging together. I stood there for a second as I was registering what was happening and then I ran away. 
When I told the guys about it, several of them said they had had the same thing happen to them, either during the week or at other times. Another time I was going to the bathroom one day, and by the door was a man who looked to have been badly burned. He looked real, but because it didn't make any sense to me that he was standing there, I tried to touch him. My hand went right through. Apparently I let out a pretty loud scream that I do not remember because one of the paramedics asked me why I was yelling. I told him what happened, and he said that one of the other medics mentioned the same thing a few weeks before that. As far as we know, we don't have any firefighter line of duty deaths from being burned. We have had deaths from guys falling through floors, but never from anyone being burned. And even the guys who fell through the floor were never burned that badly because they were quickly removed from the building. The only thing I can think of is that we have had patients who have been burned badly. We had a guy who got hit by a drunk driver and his entire body was burned. When we touched him to remove him from the car, what was left of his skin slid off in our hands. Another guy committed suicide by covering himself in gasoline and setting himself on fire. And we had a couple who were murdered and then set on fire. I personally think that it's the husband, because that entire situation was so messed up. Originally it was being said that he was the one who killed his wife and then killed himself. But during that call I said to the police that I didn't think he killed the wife or himself. It would be illegal for me to go into detail as to why I thought that, but point being, I was correct. Now I can say that the murderer was standing in the street crying, who happened to be a family member. So I thought maybe it was that guy trying to say something to me in the afterlife. Some of us did discuss the possibility of it being a manifestation of PTSD. But it wouldn't make sense for us all to have PTSD manifest itself in the exact same way. I'm assuming it was a good ghost or a spirit. Whatever it was, because after my initial thought of Holy shit, what the fuck is that? I didn't feel threatened. I only saw the guy once after that. I can use that bathroom without being uneasy. The man who actually murdered them was eventually arrested for it, and he is still in jail awaiting trial. Maybe that's why I never saw him again. Maybe he felt like he finally had his justice. For me, the creepiest part of this wasn't the couple's murdered bodies or even their ghosts. The creepiest part for me was that I was standing maybe three feet away from a murderer who was trying to put on an act of being devastated. There were clues beside instincts that I saw that pointed to him being the murderer. But even before I came across those things, I was standing three feet away from the man trying to console him. I felt like it was the right thing to do. But I also felt strangely uncomfortable, and he put on a good show. But I felt like the crying wasn't genuine. That was probably the most awkward and uncomfortable moment in my life. I guess maybe the moral of the story is to trust your instincts. I was born with an anatomical defect that affects basically all of the major organs, but mostly the heart and the liver. Because of how rare the disease is, I have to be treated at a hospital thousands of miles away from home. One year, I spent almost seven straight months at the hospital. None of my friends and family could visit because it was just so far away. 
The hospital has a room for young adults to hang out in and it became my favourite place to be. But I was the only person in there for a really long time. One day there was a guy in there which was weird to me because I was used to having the room to myself. I ignored him at first and I don't remember why but we struck up conversation and quickly became friends. I learned that his name was Daryl. He was a year younger than me and he was being treated for cancer. We exchanged numbers at the end of the night and met up at that spot every night for a long time. Even though we were dragging our IV poles and oxygen tanks there every night, it was the one time a day we could just hang out in the company of somebody our own age like normal people did in their early 20s. We talked about music, hobbies, our families, our homes, our jobs and many other things. We talked about things that only people in our position would understand. We had a conversation one day about how we would be thrilled to get to go to work. Neither of us had been to work in a long time and we both missed our shitty jobs. We talked about how our parents would say stuff like, I know what you're going through, we're going through it with you. And how that pissed us off because we certainly were not going through the same thing. It was things like that only he would get. We met up one night and I was scheduled for a major heart liver surgery the next day. I told him I would see him in a week or so when I was able to get out of bed. Unfortunately, that was the last time we saw each other. I had a lot of complications from surgery and was put in a medically induced coma for several months. During that time, I required seven additional major surgeries. I think part of my mind was mildly aware of what was happening. I was hallucinating the whole time, and not in a good way. I kept thinking that the doctors were these evil scientists who were using me as their experiment. I hallucinated that they stabbed me in the chest once, and then just kept shoving stuff in the hole. But I later found out that was because they were actually putting a chest tube in for my collapsed lung, and I was apparently somewhat aware of it. When they were taking me to one of my surgeries, I remember going towards a bright light, I should mention at this point that I was essentially on my deathbed at 20 years old. I was in multi-organ failure. My heart, liver, lungs, kidneys and intestines were all in complete failure. I was on ECMO, which is a heart and lung machine for those who don't know, and dialysis. I was even being fed through a feeding tube since my intestines didn't work. I was being fed by TPN, which is food that goes through a central line but even with all that help, I was barely clinging to life. My doctors called my dad and told him he needed to come down to say his final goodbyes to me. But my dad didn't show up. Not because he was being a dick, but because he couldn't accept that his daughter was going to die. He told them to do anything and everything they could think of to keep me alive. So this surgery was essentially to please my dad. I kept fighting doctors and nurses in my delirium thinking they were taking me to a lab to kill me and experiment with my body and kept, they kept having to give me more sedatives so I wouldn't fight anymore. Looking back on it now I realise it was probably the light from the operating room. Contrary to what is shown in movies, operating rooms are very bright. But I know people say they see a bright light when they're about to die. But those people always say that they felt an overwhelming sense of peace. I didn't. I was terrified of what was about to happen to me. 
I thought they were going to kill me. But then all of a sudden my friend walked up to me in my hallucination and told me that they weren't trying to hurt me. He told me they were trying to make me better. But the weird thing was that even in the hallucination he was see-through. After seeing him I felt comfortable and allowed the doctors or evil scientists in my mind to do their job. My dad was right to not accept that I was going to die. Eventually I got better enough to be taken out of a coma and off life support. I wasn't able to walk but I didn't want to stay in my room so I would roll around in a wheelchair. I texted Daryl one day to meet me in our usual spot but he never responded. I thought maybe he just didn't answer and that he would be there anyway. I waited for him for hours but he never showed up. We weren't on the same floor. I was in ICU and he was on the oncology unit. I went back to my nurse and begged her to bring me to the oncology floor to see if he was there. She gave in and took me there, but I didn't find him. His nurses told me that he had passed away weeks ago. He was taken to the oncology ICU and put in a medically induced coma for about three weeks and then passed away. I wonder if the image of him in my hallucination was somehow our dreams, hallucinations from our respective comas crossing paths, or if it was him speaking to me from the dead. Maybe it was just my mind playing tricks on me. But I still think it was weird how you see through in my dream. Eventually I went to a rehab hospital and then home. I go back to the hospital a few times a year and whenever I go into that room where we used to hang out I always feel weird now. I don't know if it's a good or a bad weird but to be honest it makes me uncomfortable. It isn't my go-to hangout anymore. I tend to stay in my room when I'm in the hospital now for that reason although I feel guilty. I believe in spirits and I feel like maybe his spirit goes back to that room to hang out with me. I miss hanging out with the only person who understood what I was going through and I hope when I die we can be ghosts together. I believe that the combination of my dad's stubbornness to not accept my imminent death and the comfort that Daryl brought me during that time is what got me through it. Today I'm doing amazingly well, way better than anyone thought I could be. I'm back to firefighting which is my favourite thing in the world and a big part of my motivation to get better. I go to the gym every day after work and I actually feel better than I ever have in my life. I never realised how sick I was until I had this surgery and realised how people are supposed to feel. I can think better, breathe better, I have more energy than ever. I still will likely need a liver and kidney transplant in a few years. But for now, I'm trying to live life to the fullest for both me and Daryl. What an incredible woman. Oh, my heart. So I've gone through that amount of surgery and then and now to be fighting fires is just crazy levels of incredible. I just want to, before we go any further, I want to just, I will never understand the dedication and the bravery of firefighters and paramedics in particular because the horrors that they see is it, it just it just baffles me it baffles me how you can stay going into work every day seeing those things so i'm tipping my hat to you guys 
another fire station haunting story. What happened to all those firefighters that they were so deep asleep they didn't feel the building shaking and only two of them got up to answer the call? What was going on? They must have just been knackered. Yeah. Like really, really exhausted. I don't think that happens very often though because I think they're just so trained to be alert even when they're asleep they're like on their feet at the sign, the first sign of the bell going. Yeah, maybe. But there's also, you know, they, they had been... Like she said, they had been working solidly hmm. for like 12 days or whatever, battling these people who were um, dealing with these snowstorms. Hmm. So it might have been that they literally were just like, I'm so tired. So maybe our chief was seeing like a tide-induced hallucination. Potentially. Yeah. If he had seen her vomit blood before, then it might just be a memory, might it? Two different things coming together, I guess. But there was all the knocking, wasn't there? And the, the burnt man. I think it's interesting what she said about PTSD. Because I do wonder... I mean, I do... I agree that PTSD is unlikely to manifest itself in the exact same way in a whole group of people. But I do wonder how much PTSD firefighters and paramedics suffer and how that impacts them and maybe it changes their view on things. Mm. Because PTSD is scary. So our second story today comes from Ashley. And this is actually a follow-up to a previous story. Okay. So, a few years after the cottage, Nick and I had gotten married and I was happily and uncomfortably eight months pregnant. We were living in a very small apartment and I suppose you could say that it was part of a compound of sorts. Ours was one of five small houses on a large piece of property that was also home to a very large Russian Orthodox church and the private home of the priest and his family. Although we were witness to some very strange and entertaining sights, we experienced nothing paranormal at this home. The only downside was that it was far too small for our growing family and we began to stress about finding something larger and affordable. A few months before my due date, we got a call from my godfather, Jim, to inform us that sadly his Uncle Ed had passed away, unexpectedly in an awful car accident. Grief was quickly changed into excitement and gratitude when he offered us the opportunity to move into Ed's house and pay rent at a very reduced price. We would have been insane for passing this up. Renovations to the house went very quickly and we were all moved in and settled down just in time to welcome the arrival of our baby boy Tanner. I mentioned in my last story about the feelings that I get sometimes. I would love to say that there was no inclination for what was to come, but I would be lying. I felt those little prickles and stomach turns from time to time before Tanner was born, and even up until things started going awry. In very Ashley fashion, I expertly explained those feelings away. It's just unsettling to live in the house of a man you once knew. It's no big deal. You're just nervous about going into labour. Stop stressing. You're exhausted from the sleepless nights with the new baby. Everything's fine. Everything was not fine. It started off slowly at first. Quick noises, a passing chill and shudder, the usual. As time went on, things started to become much more noticeable. The house is very old and the basement floor is basically dirt 
There's technically a concrete floor, but it is disintegrating and cracking. In one corner of the basement, there is an area that has been dug up so the floor is completely broken and it's just earth and concrete dust. I somewhat recall us being told that at one point Ed had had that area dug up in order to look for piping or something of that nature, but I honestly don't know. In that same corner there is a light bulb that is not attached to the light switch for the rest of the basement. I've no explanation for that either. This specific light has a pull chain to turn it on and off, but like I said, there's no reason to use it so we never do. After returning home from a family dinner one night, Nick pointed out that the basement light was on. We have small cellar windows just above ground level that allow you to somewhat see into the basement from outside. He scolded me, of course, for leaving the light on after doing laundry early that evening. Sure, that's fine. Except for the fact that I had not been in the basement at all that day. Upon further inspection, Nick realised that the basement light was not left on. The corner light was on. Creepy? Yes. Explainable? I suppose. Nick explained that the light bulb was very old and that this happens. But does it really? Just like coffee cups roll up and down tables by themselves too, right? Well, you know that I just went along with this explanation at the time. And the next time and the next time, and so on, until other lights in the house started to just magically do the same thing. And there go my feelings again, ramping back up into high alert. Let me backtrack a little bit and explain to you the layout of our house, for future reference. Our house is basically a rectangle, split perfectly down the middle. On the left side of the house, from the front to the back, is the living room, then kitchen, not separated by a door. In the living room, there is a large archway that opens up into the hallway on the right-hand side of the house. Immediately on the left is our bedroom. Then moving down the hall to the right is a small office. Then the bathroom, and last, at the end of the hall, our son's room. It is also important to mention that there is a small linen closet directly across from the office. At this point in the nightmare timeline, The lights have a mind of their own, and they also have brought the doors in on their sick game. The house does not have great circulation of heat or air conditioning, so we've gotten into the habit of closing all the doors in order to try and keep the temperatures in the main living areas comfortable. It's a bit unsettling to come home or even go from room to room to find doors open that you know for a fact were just closed. The worst of these doors are the closets. There were many times that I would walk into a bedroom and find a closet door open, just a crack, including the linen closet. Nick refused to tell me anything of the sort that he noticed because he just wanted me to relax. I know this all seems fairly non-threatening and a bit silly to be so worked up about it, and I would agree as an outsider. All I can say in my defence at that point was that once again the atmosphere of the house had changed. Not as harshly as before but just enough to be unsettled and on edge the majority of the time. Then it happened. The night that I will never forget started as a night of broken sleep. I remember tossing and turning a majority of the night until finally falling asleep. 
After what felt like only seconds of deep sleep, I woke suddenly out of fear. For seemingly no reason, until I noticed that the closet door across from the front of our bed was wide open. I stared into the dark for a long time, praying that nothing jumped out or moved. Why didn't the dogs wake up? That's all I kept saying to myself. They bark at every noise. How the hell did they not hear the door open right near their heads? I mustered up the courage to get up to shut the door, then threw a pillow at the dogs so I didn't have to do it alone. I crawled slowly down the end of the bed, took a deep breath and leaped towards the door to slam it shut. It wouldn't shut. What the fuck? I panicked, slamming the door over and over and reaching over to turn on the bedroom light. And then I realised the shirt was in the door jam, not allowing the door to click closed. I moved the shirt, closed the door and turned around to see Nick looking at me like I was insane. I just shook my head, turned off the light and went back to bed. I'm not sure how long I had actually been back to sleep when Nick and I were both jolted awake by the blood-curdling screams of our son down the hallway. I jumped out of bed and was met with the closet door wide open. Pushing past the door, I ran down into the hallway and had to stop midway because my path was blocked by the linen closet door also wide open. As I tried to close the door, I noticed that a laundry hamper was pushed over onto its side, blocking the door from closing. Panicking since my son is still screaming, I kicked the hamper, slammed the door and scrambled over the spilled laundry and hamper in a desperate attempt to reach my son's room. The sight I was met with shook me to my core. Tanner was about 18 months old at this point, so we had moved him out of his crib into a toddler bed. It was not unusual for him to get frightened and come into our room in the middle of the night, which is why Nick didn't think anything of Tanner screaming for us and crying. When I entered his room, however, I was not met with a scared little boy sitting up in his bed calling for me. Instead, what I found was Tanner, under his bed, frantically trying to claw his way back out. I ran to him and tried pulling him out. It was oddly difficult. It felt like he was stuck on something, or something was holding him back. After a few good tugs, he came free and I ran out of the room with him in my arms. I explained to Nick what had happened. Tanner slept in between us the rest of the night and we did not sleep. The next day we had a family event to attend. As we were in the car getting ready to leave, Nick turned to me and said, I'll be right back. He went back into the house and returned to the car about five minutes later. When I asked him what he had done, all he said was, I put an end to this shit. I didn't ask him any more questions about it. When we arrived home later that evening, the back porch light was on, but that was it. I've no idea what Nick did, but it has been about five years with no incident. No lights, no doors, no noises. I still creep myself out from time to time, but I do not think any of that is related. Some friends we have told this story to have questioned that maybe Ed was visiting us from the grave and was angry about the renovations that were done to his house before we moved in. But I really don't think so. 
Ed was one of the kindest people I've ever known. Even if he was upset about the house, I could never imagine him targeting our baby. Maybe we brought something with us from the cottage, and it just took some time to gain energy. Your guess is as good as mine. I'm just happy that it's over and I'm praying it stays that way. Just a little side note. In the middle of editing this story, I got up to use the bathroom. When I walked into the hallway, I found the linen closet door completely open. What did Nick say? What did he do? I really want to know what Nick said or did too. Because if I said that to you and went off in the house, you'd expect to see smoke in the rearview mirror as we drove off, wouldn't you? Yeah, and you'd be like, just don't ask any questions. And I'd be like, I can, you literally still have the lighter in your hand and the gas the can, can in yeah. the other hand. There would be no subtlety about it. No. Oh, well, that's so like, that must just be terrifying coming in to see your kid like struggling to get out from under the bed. Oh, like, God. what is even under there? Would you really want to know, like genuinely, no, 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 at that point, if you, if you, if you know, if you've seen that and you're trying to pull your kid out from under the bed, I, I don't even think I'd want to know. I'd just be like, fuck this. I'd be tempted to flip the bed. Would you? Mm. To see it? Well, no, just because you get a better grip of your kid, wouldn't you? If you all struggle, like, think about how much I struggle to get under our bed, (laughs) as it is. (laughs) If you're trying to pull the kid out. Like and trying to negotiate the size because being an adult, even if you're a small adult, it's going to be more difficult to get under the bed. Flip the bed, then get your kid. I thought you were going to flip the bed to show the demon who's boss. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but apparently not. Apparently no. we're on different wavelengths. Yeah, I was there. just being practical, but that is not. That is. Um... Yeah, I really want to know what Nick said. I want to know what Nick did. What does Nick know? Nick. How many times did I say Nick in that sentence? Nick, what do you know? Tell us your secrets. Yeah, I mean maybe don't because maybe it's it's better left unsaid because you don't know you don't want to stir anything back up again. But I am intrigued. Tell me your secrets. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find everything you need to know about us on www.reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com, where you can find links to our social medias, the email address to send your stories to, and the link to our Patreon, where for five dollars or two dollars a month you can get heaps of bonus content please don't forget to donate to out of the woods wildlife rescue and rehabilitation if you can if you can at all and the links for everything that you need are in the description of this episode and on that note we shall see you tomorrow bye
of the 15 people at the firehouse, only myself and another fire fa- Wow. <laughs> I actually said fire fapper. <laughs> fire flapper is something very different. <laughs> uh, uh, ooh, right, let's try that again.